This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to the South Australian Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. It's great to have your company today. There's a lot happening on the River Murray at the moment as the river approaches its peak flow. You'll hear from a couple of people who are living on the river and dealing with some of the issues faced by many people now along the river. Also, Australia is shipping record amounts of wheat into China, but barley is still out in the cold. At the moment, China... For any barley they're buying, is paying more than they need to. And the reality is if we had access to China, our, our farmers would get paid more for our barley, but the Chinese consumers would be paying less for their barley. So it would be a, a win-win situation, and I think that's, that's what we all want. But these things have got a habit of taking a long time. More on that soon. But first up today... The state government has put $6.8 million towards protecting the state from emergency animal diseases. This is going to fill in some of the gaps that have been identified since biosecurity became an increasingly uh, prominent issue that governments across Australia have been forced to face with uh, external threats as well as uh, some internal threats as well with Varroa now being found in New South Wales. But uh, Livestock SA in particular is concerned about the uh, the animal diseases and they are the ones that have been found uh, close to uh, Australia in um, Indonesia with lumpy skin disease and foot and mouth disease leading the charge but there are obviously many diseases and uh, this has come to the fore as a result of these threats and it's forced a few changes uh, from a government point of view and from an animal management point of view so to get a bit of an update on where things are up to I'm joined by Travis Tobin from Livestock SA good afternoon good afternoon Cassie how, what do you make of the $6.8 million that the state government has put towards uh, emergency animal diseases? Yeah, for us it's an important step in what, what has been an enormous amount of work uh, by industry and government, uh, as you said, since the, um, I guess there was a jolting of complacent, jolting out of complacency since uh, lumpy skin disease and foot-mouth disease were detected in Indonesia. So there's been a lot of streams of work going on there, um, you know, at national, state levels, there's been uh, task forces, working groups, new plans, strategies, scenario planning exercises, etc. And then at a state level, you know, we've had those awareness uh, activities uh, some months ago now with um, webinars, etc. Um, we've we've seen we've had a scenario planning exercise with other livestock bodies in the government, which we've got an action plan out the back of that, and then we've. Um, you know, started to see the, the regulatory change. So through amendments to the Livestock Act recently, um, this commitment, which obviously starts to bolster some of the gaps within government, so really welcome that. You know, it's about equipment processes and people, so, you know, increasing assessment, diagnostic capacity, coordination capacity, and particularly regional workforces with veterinarians and uh, animal health staff. So it's it's one of many streams of work that have sort of happened um, from those processes early in the year. You mentioned there that there are a couple of uh, 
streams to this. Uh, so there's this money that's just been put towards emergency animal diseases. But there was also a decision made at the Ag Minister's meeting earlier this year that electronic ID tags for sheep would be made mandatory by 2025. And states have gone away to try and work out how they're going to do it. We did hear recently that New South Wales has forged ahead. The state government has made a call on how they're going to do that, as I believe has Western Australia. Where is South Australia up to? Because there was a steering committee created to head it up by Peter Trelaw to, to try and work out how South Australia would go about this. Where's that up to? Yeah, that's right. And, and that's the next big body of work that has been happening and will continue to happen um, for some time. So you're right, every state's gone about it differently, which is probably not unusual. Um, but here in South Australia, what we've done was it's more of an industry-led process uh, where we... You're right, we've appointed a supply chain uh, committee to basically look at what are the most, you know, what are all the issues across the, the value chain and then how do we make the, the most informed decisions around EID for, for sheep and managed goats um, to be implemented in South Australia. So that's to, to ideally inform us to get the best long-term outcomes for producers and the industry. Uh, where are we up to? So the steering committee actually met yesterday. Um, they're considering the final uh, version of a business case report that we engage the consultant to do. The next steps really are looking at what are what are the, uh, the timelines, uh, what is the national harmonisation, what is the equitable cost sharing and what is the collaboration required with the state government uh, and through industry because, of, you know, a collaborative approach will be key to successful implementation. When do you think the plan for rolling out mandatory EID tags will be ready for South Australia? Yeah, so it's, it's an iterative process and things are moving quite quickly and some some decisions are taken out of, out of your control. So the next time frame really is uh, March to have an implementation plan for South Australia. So... Uh, and that's off the back of the federal government at last budget announced uh, 46 or 7 million, I think it was, uh, 20 of which was to incentivise cost-sharing arrangements and co-investment arrangements with jurisdictions. So um, that we're working towards a March deadline for that. And, and as you said before, some states have already come out and identified what they're doing, and that's important for us from an implementation perspective because, as we know, South Australia is the only... Um, the only mainland state that borders every other state. So harmonisation is pretty critical for us to be able to manage businesses more effectively and including up and down the supply chain. So there, there are things being announced all the time. The other one was we've been given market signals. Uh, the processes, processing sector announced last week that um, you know any, any lambs born after 1 January 2025 has to have an electronic tag and they're basically saying no. Uh, all movements of, of sheep and managed goats will need electronic identification by 1 January 2027. So some of those timelines are there that we need to work in and around uh, and then it's just how we, we do that in the most collaborative way in the state to make it effective and, and encouragingly that we have seen that through this process there's been really good collaboration within industry uh, and really good collaboration between industry and government at all levels. So we're looking for that to continue we're looking to, to really land on the harmonisation as best, best we can, uh, equitable cost sharing and collaboration um, through industry and government. 2025 sounds a long way away, 
but we are about to enter 2023. Do you think it's going to be enough time to get everything sorted out from the sale yards to the uh, truck drivers to the on-farm work that has to happen? Yeah, it will come around quick. And, and like everything, implementation is only as effective as, as how well you plan and then how well you resource it. So, um, you know, that's exactly part of it, identifying not only what are the technical aspects, the... Um, uh, you know, what What are the physical things you need to do? There's a whole range of processes, education, extension, support, all those things that need to go with it. And all of those things require identification as to how will they work, who will do them, who's funding them, and to what level are they funded. So, yeah, there is a bit to work out. As I said, it, it is moving quickly. Um, uh, we're consulting as widely and as thoroughly as we can with industry, but as I said, some timelines are taken out of your hands and you've just got to move with it uh, to get the best outcome you can for producers. It's largely irrelevant because the government has mandated it, but what sort of support are you hearing from livestock producers, or sheep producers in particular? Yeah, so there are some concerns around certain livestock movements, um, which, which we've seen through the process, such as... Um, uh, harvested rangeland goats, which essentially all jurisdictions have agreed there are there are certain issues around that, that, that including WHS issues that, that make it a little bit different to other livestock movements. So that one is already harmonised. And the one that's been, I guess, the most topical here in SA has been the uh, vendor-bred direct-to-slaughter uh, lambs. So uh, again, to a large and, and appreciate that because people are saying, well, how does it actually increase the traceability? So, you know, there's valid claims there, but I think, again, we're seeing some things are, are becoming... Uh, they will have to happen a certain way as we've received market signals from the, the processes basically saying um, any, any lambs born after 1 January 2025 won't be received and then it's all stock uh, after 1 January 2027. So... So the market signals are there um, and it's about working within those to make sure we get the best possible outcome for producers and the industry uh, and make implementation as effective as possible. Thanks so much for your time today. Keep in touch and see how things go by March. That was uh, Travis Tobin, the CEO of Livestock SA there, just with an update following $6.8 million being put towards emergency animal diseases by the state government. We'll move to grain now, and uh, Australia is actually shipping record amounts of wheat into China despite the trade tensions, but they are getting a reduction, but getting a reduction, I should say, to the massive Chinese tariff on barley. It's going to take a lot longer, and that's despite the Chinese paying higher prices to get barley from other countries. With Foreign Minister Penny Wong heading to China, analyst Andrew Whitelaw from Episode 3 told Michael Condon he will watch the trade talks with interest, but expects change to take time. If we just look specifically at barley, at the moment, uh, China, for any barley they're buying, is paying more than they need to. And the reality is if we had access to China, our, our farmers would get paid more for our barley, but the Chinese consumers would be paying less for their barley. So it would be a, a win-win situation, and I think that's, that's what we all want. But these things have got a habit of taking a long time, and uh, I'm not optimistic that we'll, we'll, we'll see a resolution uh, that will be a light speed. I think it will take a, it'll be a slow, meandering process uh, for us to get access to China and then fix these problems that we've had over the last couple of years. So we don't send any barley at the moment? 
No, we're not saying anything to, anything to China. We've basically got a, a 80, 80.5% tariff, uh, which precludes us from being able to commercially send barley to China. So that's meant China's had to buy a lot of barley from all sorts of different places around the world, you know, France, Argentina, Ukraine, Canada, uh, but not from us. But, but they switched through and bought a bit more wheat and a bit more sorghum. Quite a bit more wheat. I heard one commentator saying they bought record amounts of wheat from Australia last year. That's right, yeah. And, and I, look, at the end of the day, that's nothing to do with any our wheat being the best in the world or anything like that. It's just by virtue of the fact that we've had cheap wheat. We've had a situation in Ukraine where you know, Ukrainian and Russian volumes have you know, dropped in terms of the export capacity with, with the ongoing conflict. We've had cheap wheat. We've had... You know, we're, we're into our third large crop in a row. We've had cheap wheat. It's been available. And countries around the world have been buying it because it's cheap. So with all the flooding in New South Wales, we've still got a record crop in WA. So that means it's, there's plenty available. There's plenty of grain in Australia. You know, we've got, we got carryover from the previous year. And, um, and, and the, the crops have generally been pretty well. And, and probably the, a lot of the quality is probably slightly better than people were expecting, even on the East Coast. So we've got the we've got the we've got the yields, and we've got the volume, and so it's going to be a large crop, uh, despite all the problems we've had on in New South Wales and Victoria. It's a big crop, and uh, supply and demand comes into it, and we see these big discounts. We see this every time we have a big crop, uh, that the grain starts to become discounted, and that's just natural supply and demand. And in terms of the record in chi- record we're sending to China, how much are we sending? Like how much? How many million tons are we sending to China in wheat? Uh, I don't have it off the top of my head the, the actual number, but it's but it's but it's large, and we can see definitely the composition of our trade has changed a lot in the last couple of years. We've gone from heavily being an exporter of barley to China to really being a big exporter of sorghum and wheat, and so that's that's a real reversal in. in the trade flows, uh, but it's huge volumes. Uh, and that's what's interesting about it is China's been a big importer in the last two years of all grains, uh, corn, wheat, barley from around the world. And, and we're just managing to pick up you know, a big chunk of that. So is it a sign that they haven't had great seasons or great production of grain in China, that, um, uh, although they don't advertise it? Yeah, well, I think the fact that we've gone from, let's say, two or three years ago, they would import about 15 million tonnes or thereabouts of wheat, barley, corn combined. Uh, 2021, they imported about 55 million tonnes. And this year, slightly less, but still large volumes, I think about 30-odd million tonnes. That's normally the sign of a supply issue, not a demand issue. And so they have had issues around floods and droughts over the last two years. And so the expectation would be that it's probably not quite as rosy as um, as you, you would expect in China, or as they would have you feel. Right. So, they, but they never really advertise it. It's always a record year. <laughs> That's what they say officially, isn't it? Yep. The beggar's belief when you consider how much they're buying. Correct. So, but I think that is is an, is an issue to look forward to is when they start going back to normal levels of imports, and it takes some demand away. Because as much as we have these perfect years, they do have a lot of grain production in China. Well, they're the world's biggest producer of wheat, aren't they? That's right, yeah. Mm, but they eat it all. I think with, with Penny Wong, if we could just get some of that barley in, it would help pump up the price of the barley. Not to mention the wine. And the wine and remove some of the issues around meat. And lobster. Yeah, and, and, but yeah, beef too. That would be a big fill-up for the beef industry too. 
it's a big market, and look, as soon as we get open to them again, we'll be importing large volumes of barley again into China. That's just the way it will go. We all be dependent on price. That was Andrew Whitelaw speaking to uh, Michael Condon there. He's an analyst with Episode 3. It is 20 minutes past 12. Now, uh, if you were looking outside last night, you probably caught a bit of an electrical storm. There were a lot of uh, electrical strikes across the uh, state. Yesterday I heard a few um, little fires were started. Fortunately, the rain put them out. But uh, hard, fast and strong is the way Peter Whittlesey used to describe the hailstorm that hit Mount Ebus Station last night. The station found uh, roughly 80 kilometres north of Woomera not only received marble-sized hailstones, but over 50 mil of rain as well and he says that brings their rainfall total to 381 millimetres for the year, more than double what they'd receive annually. Yeah, it was a fairly uh, severe, sharp event I guess you'd say, so a series of little not weren't little, they were bigger strips of thunderstorms went across the property and the homestead itself had another 49 mils of rain but to start that off was quite a large hail event which those that have got Facebook or look at all that sort of gear you'll see a heap of uh, hail that was sort of marble size or you know I don't know what you call the big marbles that you get but some of it was pretty big like bigger than your thumbnail across that started the event off and then it rained very seriously on the back of all of that but yeah it was a pretty impressive little event. Yeah, and as you mentioned, they're, they're quite large in size. It was remarkable. How, how much damage do they do? Oh, we were rushing around. Toby, which is the, the, my manager that's there as well, he um, he took a couple for the team, running around putting vehicles in sheds, making sure, because obviously those sort of hail or a marble plowing into a, a vehicle um, does a bit of damage or a dent in it. But it was sort of, our biggest problem probably has been, because the hail was so big and it come down so quick, it blocked all the gutters. So if you can imagine it hitting a roof and then rolling down into the gutter, like it doesn't melt straight away. And then we've had some real serious rain to follow the bit of hail up and the water that's come off the roof has blocked, like hasn't run through the normal gutter system. It's ran inside the building, sort of filled the gutter and then overflowed on the inside in a couple of cases. So we're going to have a few housing insurance claims, I guess you'd say. And we haven't checked all, like, all of our boards around the property are run by solar so if you remember, once again you get a solar panel which is glass on top of it. I know it's all treated and hardened and hopefully the ones at the homestead seem to be okay but it's like a little rock hitting against it so there's potentially probably a bit of damage on that front too I'd say. And how about the others in the area have you spoken to them what does their damage look like much similar to yours? I think very similar Toby went with a four-wheeler yesterday just out to the north of the homestead by about a couple of k's and the young salt bush and grass that was all there obviously was really heavy there and where the hail's hit it's actually stripped all the leaves off the salt bush back to bare stalk and then flattened all the dry grass but we've had a magnificent year like as far as rainfall records go and and the amount of fodder and grass that we've grown but this is sort of just it'll come again because that wet underneath again but it really has belted the hell out of the plants and on social media, there's comments like, we've never seen hail like this in Mount Eber before. How uncommon is this, especially for the time of year and where you are in the outback? Um, anything's possible in a storm. And, and I know I'm talking to a heap of other farmers out there all listening now, but we're all going, climate change is obviously, is there is something in it, if that makes sense. So I don't want to be sounding very sceptical about it all, but we do seem to be getting more severe events. Um, and that's pretty much what they're telling 
telling us will happen. Like it's um, the events are going to get more severe both ways. So we've had 381 millimetres for the year now. And you've got to put this in perspective that this is our annual rainfall. The property is 150 millimetres. So we've had more than double. And in October alone, we've had 144 millimetres in October. That's our yearly average in one month. So that was Peter Whittlesey there from Mount Eber Station speaking to Dimitri Panagiotaris. Had a text in this morning from Mark from Cleve as well who had 40 millimetres in the last 24 hours and 22 mils of that in 20 minutes, which, uh, yeah, that's a lot of rain in 20 minutes. Uh, we'll have to find out what's happening uh, with other weather. We're joined by Senior Forecaster from the Bureau of Meteorology, John Fisher. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So, uh, yeah, a bit of rain around, but that has started to make its way across the state by the looks of things. Yeah, look, it will do uh, as we move through the rest of today and into Thursday. But, uh, yeah, still seeing that trough sitting across central parts of the state that's been triggering that thunderstorm uh, activity. So, yeah, it's been very uh, electrically active uh, across parts of the state over the last 24 hours. Uh, we, we've recorded, uh, you know, something like 75,000 cloud-to-ground lightning strikes. Uh, so, yeah, very active, and we've had those severe thunderstorms uh, mainly up through the, the north uh, of the state. Uh, but, uh, yeah... Today, you know, we're looking a little bit further south for, for the potential of severe thunderstorms as we move through the afternoon. So currently we do have uh, some thunderstorm activity across York Peninsula, uh, the mid-north there, and also stretching out across uh, some of the eastern parts. Uh, so, yeah, as we move through the afternoon, uh, th those uh, kind of central and eastern parts of the uh, the state are kind of a risk of seeing uh, some severe thunderstorms, and, and we could see, uh, again, uh, some heavy rainfall, large hail and gusty winds uh, with that activity. So, yeah... Uh, very much kind of watching uh, those storms at the moment. Uh, in terms of rainfall, probably looking at, you know, 5 to 20 millimetres with this thunderstorm activity for, for the remainder of today in kind of patchy uh, areas. Uh, but some, some of the, the heavier kind of falls could be in that kind of 20 to 40 millimetre range uh, today, Cassie. So, yeah, certainly some heavy downpours on the way. And, uh, you know, we can kind of feel that humidity in the, in the air as well uh, with this activity. But uh, as we move through the, the rest of the week, we're, we're looking at uh, uh, some, some milder conditions developing across the, the south of the state uh, as that trough moves eastwards and, and a high starts to move into the bite uh, on Thursday. So uh, not a, a strong high-pressure system, but we will see kind of moderate uh, southerly winds come in behind it, maybe some fresh sea breezes uh, as well. And, and that kind of pattern persists for, for Thursday through to uh, uh, Christmas Eve there, Saturday. Uh, so temperatures dropping back to the kind of mid-20s around southern districts, still up into the, the high 20s or, or low 30s across the, the north of the state. And, yeah, pretty much dry through that period as well apart from the far northeast where we could see some uh, lingering showers and thunderstorms Cassie uh, and then for, for Sunday Christmas Day there uh, looks like temperatures do start to, to jump up across the state so uh, southern coastal areas probably will still be under a kind of a, a milder uh, southerly or, or sea breezes there on, on Christmas Day uh, in the mid-20s, but uh, elsewhere looking at uh, kind of low to, to mid-30s. Uh, so, yeah, a bit of a warm one uh, for much of the state on Christmas Day and some sunny conditions there. Uh, so, yeah, not, not too bad conditions, but certainly uh, it does look to, to warm up after that. So as we <coughs> head into early next week, Cassie, so from Boxing Day uh, onwards, uh, we are looking 
hit a, a very kind of uh, hot uh, period. So uh, the the tropics are starting to become a bit more active, and and uh, what that often means is uh, we see some of that heat that's been building up over the north of the uh, the continent push down across the the southern areas. And yeah, we're we're looking at potential uh, heat wave conditions with temperatures either in the the high 30s or, or low 40s uh, for for Monday, Tuesday, and and then we'll see a, a change move across at this stage probably uh, this time next week on Wednesday uh, with some more thunderstorms uh, in that. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye uh, on that uh, heat uh, next week, Cassie. But in the meantime, we've just got these uh, thunderstorms uh, contracting eastwards today with uh, some possible severe conditions. It does sound like it is going to get very hot. Thanks for that, John. We'll uh, keep in touch with the Bureau of Meteorology to hear how the weather will change over the next week or so. Thanks so much for that. That was John Fisher from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be partly cloudy tomorrow. There's a medium chance of showers, most likely in the afternoon and evening. There could be a thunderstorm around as well. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 19 and 22 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid-30s. The lower western will be partly cloudy. There's a high chance of showers in the east, a medium chance elsewhere, and again, maybe some thunderstorms around as well. Overnight getting down to 18 degrees, but the daytime temperatures starting to warm up going to reach around 30 degrees. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today as uh, all eyes are on the river as flows approach the forecast peak. Soon you're going to hear from people in both the Riverland and Murraylands about what's happening on the ground as this river really swells to be uh, a massive river at the moment. And uh, also coming up in the next half hour, you would have heard a lot about seaweed in recent years. Sparagopsis has really made a name for itself as a potential methane abatement um, measure. But there are other uses for seaweed as well. You're going to hear why tuna company, Dinko Tuna, is harvesting natural seaweed. So we turn it into something that become useful. And uh, that's uh, we now very exciting that we got some, uh, you know, seaweed fertilizer, and uh, another one is uh, to do with uh, pigment. It's some interesting work that's happening there out of uh, Port Lincoln. We'll have more on that soon. But first, we have to find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the South Australian Government says bans on recreational uses of the flooded River Murray do not extend to businesses, which can stay open. Some river-dependent businesses had thought the immediate ban on swimming, fishing and recreational activities meant that they would need to stop operating. However, the Emergency Services Minister Joe Sockarch says businesses are exempt under the changes. The state government has launched a series of campaigns encouraging people to spend big to support Riverland producers this Christmas amid the flood emergency. Producers in the region are struggling with both the tourism downturn and damage from floodwaters inundating crops. And the union representing bus drivers in Adelaide won't rule out industrial action on Christmas or New Year's Eve as a bitter pay dispute with Torrens Transit drags on. More than a 1,000 drivers have overwhelmingly voted to take industrial action, which will begin by ditching uniforms and could then extend to strike action. More news at one o'clock.
Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. And as he said, more news at one o'clock. Now, uh, the river is certainly in full force across the Riverland. Leah Beard's family has had to move into emergency accommodation in Berry, which is a long way from their home in Taylorville after power was shut off, uh, despite the fact that they're actually quite a long way from floodwaters. And uh, with a young baby, it's a very difficult situation. Leah Beard joins me now. Good afternoon. Hello, how are you going? I'm well, thank you. How are you going? Yes, we're going okay. <laughs> We've got no power but we and water, but we are very safe from flooding, thankfully. So your, your house is not under any threat from the, the river, but um, no. the power has been cut off. What has that meant for you? So for us, no power um, also means no water because we pump directly from the river. So we've got no flushing toilets, no showers, no air conditioner, no water for our livestock. So I've only got a few sheep, but sheep and chooks and gardens, yeah, so nothing really. So that sounds like you can't live there if you if you don't have access to any of that. It is very challenging at the moment. So we are currently have emergency accommodation at Barry, which is solving some problems. But we are having to, it's about 180 k's round trip every day to go and check feed animals, make sure they've got water, plus the fuel for generators is quite expensive and going back to top them up daily as well. And and what are those generators? What are you actually keeping going? You'd have to, what, keep your fridges going? Is, is so there anything got, else yeah. you can, and stock water? Um, yeah, just like a pump to fill up tanks to get water out to stock. Um, yeah, a freezer and a fridge and just for lighting. Like we've got our son who's sort of between both places because he works locally to home. So yeah, if he's around at night time, light for him. How long are you going to be able to keep up this situation? Because were you saying it, it's a 180k round trip for you to go and check every day? Yeah, it is 180k. So we're trying to decide at the moment what we do, whether we go back home and try. Or we are trying to sort out a long-term solution with power at home, but given the very short notice we were given, it's quite difficult. And we've spent all our time sort of at the moment getting water happening. So, yeah, we're trying to decide what we do long-term and make a workable solution. When you say long-term, how long are you expecting to have your power cut for? So the text message we received um, told us February or March next year. February or March? Gosh, that's months. Why yeah, so long? Um, because apparently where our water comes over, like our power, sorry, our power comes under the river apparently and then up over floodplains. Flood and then distance now between the power lines and the water is under 3.5 metres. So we have to wait for that water to go back under that level before our power can be restored, which could be a very long time, given our peak is still three to four weeks away at our place. Oh, really? So does that mean that water is on the wrong side, effectively, of the levee now and you'll have to wait for that all that water to be removed before the power can come back on? Yeah, well, essentially we're on the other side of the river too where our power comes from. So until the river gets lower... We just have to wait. And how, I know you've got a, a young child. How is your child going with all this yeah, so, activity? This... Yeah, it's actually quite challenging. Like when we go back to the place, because we've run batteries to run lights for when we're back there and power leads for fridge and freezers, he thinks they're great toys and he's spending the day getting to them and playing with them and we're just constantly removing him from 
from getting to power and batteries. Dangerous situations. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and he is a bit unsettled just with all the coming and going and no routine happening at the moment. Yeah, and Christmas Day must be um, sort of the furthest, furthest thing from your mind at the moment. Yeah, it is at the moment, actually. It's not something we've really thought too much of at the moment. Well, um, I do hope you're able to, to find a workable solution. Uh, if you are thinking about moving back into your house, when do you think you uh, will end up, will go back there? Um, we're not entirely sure. Um, we've got emergency accommodation until after Christmas at this stage with the option that we can extend. So um, as we were given next to no notice, but we were told at 10 to 9 at night that the next morning our power was gone. So we've sort of spent the last couple of weeks working out a solution for water. So now we can think about power as a long-term solution. Are there many people in the same situation as you who had their power cut off at short notice? Um, I'm not sure. On our, like in our little area, there's one other business and maybe a couple of shacks and maybe one or two other people. But I'm sure there are other people that I don't know about affected in various different areas along the river. Well, I know you've got a million things to do, so thank you so much for coming on and explaining your situation today. I hope you are able to, to find a workable solution so that you don't have to keep travelling backwards and forwards because that's going to cost you a fortune in fuel. Yes, it is getting quite expensive in fuel and the cost of generators and petrol for pumps at the moment, so it is very challenging. With How much do you think this will cost you? Have you done any sort of back-of-the-envelope numbers on it? Um Roughly, just to buy the pumps and generators, it'll be five to six thousand dollars, and we're going through a journey of fuel a day, so about twenty liters of fuel a day, to keep them running. But yeah, I haven't done any long-term sums, but they're just sort of quick sums. Just day to day, trying to keep things going. Well, do make yeah. sure you try and access some of the grants that are available. Um, I'm sure that there's support at, at some of the recovery centres and things like that. Hopefully you can access some support because that's a, a big outlay for uh, your family. Uh, I hope uh, everything uh, comes together for you and uh, it's a, a tough thing to be going through, especially in the lead up to Christmas. So thank you so much for having a chat with me today. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Leah. That was Leah Beard, who uh, lives, well, normally lives near Taylorville in the Riverland, but has moved into emergency accommodation at Berry because the power was shut off at their place due to the floodwaters. And, it, yeah, clearly sounds like uh, they've got quite a long wait before they'll be able to get back into their place, potentially. That's happening in the Riverland. Further down the river, though, the, the rivers are starting to swell in the Murray lands as well. We heard uh, earlier in the week on Monday about the Pondy levee breaching on the weekend. That's caused uh, a lot of concern in that part of the world. And now I hear that the Tura levee might have breached as well. Steve Hine is an agronomist in the Maipalonga Tura area and head of the Progress Association. Good afternoon. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So what's happened at Tura? Yeah, so early this morning the breach has occurred on the Tura um, levee bank. It's something that was not unexpected. Our levee has had an area there that's uh, been um, causing some concern for, for some weeks, but uh, finally has given way this morning. And who's affected by that? Okay, so we've got on the, on the Tura swamp there's um, a dairy farmer, there's some uh, pasture growing in the area, there's a horse trainer that operates on the swamp um, and a couple of other smaller land holdings. So it's a bit of a mixed bag uh, on the Tura area. 
Yeah, right. Okay, so so it's largely dairy because there are other dairy farmers that have been building uh, levees and things around that part of the world. So with the the levee breaching there, how much water's coming across? I understand it was quite a, a rush at Pondy. Is that the same thing happening at Tura? No, the exact opposite, actually, Cassie. It's a very slow. It looks um, a bit of sun, surreal, actually, for those that can see it. It's just like a normal irrigation that would be happening uh, in a normal summer's day. Uh, it's just slowly filling up. Um, it's uncontrolled. It's not stoppable. Uh, and it will depend on, the, the, I guess, the, the speed and the volume of water within the river itself that um, comes across. But, uh, yeah, it's just slowly, slowly filling up. And is it something that can be fixed or is it too far gone now? No, the um, engineers and, and different departments have been looking at it ever since it was first raised back at the beginning of November for this area. Um, but no, there's no way of um, repairing the damage. It's um, just a matter of letting nature take its course, I guess, as hard as that sounds. Um, it's, there's not much more that can be done, as, as will be the case on, on others, uh, unfortunately, um, as we, we go forward, I believe. I was speaking to some dairy farmers uh, around Maipalonga and they were more concerned about a levee breach than the river actually going over the levee because it would take longer to recover from that. Is that a similar concern here at Tura? Absolutely. There was a community meeting at Tura some weeks ago and that was raised uh, with uh, the, the different departments about um, actually self-breaching and controlling the, the break. Uh, as it's turned out, it's probably done that in its own course by nature uh, that it's only a slow um, breach at this stage um, whereas as most people saw a video of the, the uh, Pondy one uh, on Sunday morning that was uh, very swift and very um, I guess direct and you know, has caused quite a bit of uh, damage to, to that um, makeup of the, the, the levee area. Is it going slow enough that you could nearly pump it back into the river? In an ideal world, yes, I guess that could be could be considered. But um, preparations now for for some weeks have been that the power has been cut off to the pumps uh, for the pump out pump, uh, and it would only be a short term gain. Um, pump it back into the river; it's, it's only going to affect someone else at the end of the day from from that point of view. But it's not sustainable, and eventually uh, the pumps wouldn't be able to keep up with it. It will depend on on how big that tear is on the on the breached area and and how much water how quickly it comes in. Do you think it's going to hold at this relatively low level or is it going to actually, do you think it could end up doing what happened at Pondy and, and being more of a rush? Is it going to break down further, do you think? Uh, look, I'm no engineer. Uh, can't really answer that to be to be uh, truthful to you, but my gut feeling says that no, it will uh, keep going like it is while there's no southerly winds um, blowing it back on itself and things like that all contributing. Uh, but the ultimate it, ultimate um, outcome is it's going to be filled up um, like uh, Pondy and, and what, like I said, like some of the others will, uh, given given time. But instead of happening in 24 hours, this one might take you know, two or three days. Maybe I don't, I, I can't guess as to how long. But it's it's certainly Fair not enough, rushing no. in any great force. And with the power situation, we were just talking about power being cut up, cut off further up the river. So, are the irrigators all along that stretch of the river now also cut off from power? Uh, yeah, the irrigation part of it um, is is cut off. Yes, um, that, that happened a few weeks ago in preparation. Um, given that we thought this would uh, today's um, event would actually be some weeks back, 
Um, and I think that's just natural um, effort that SA Power Networks are doing to try and minimise the uh, disruption to families and, and homes um, amongst trying to um, keep the, the business side of it, like the, the rural side of it, um, as active as possible. And I know personally there's been a lot of work done in our local area to work with the um, irrigators, whether they're, they're swamp flood irrigators or um, vegetable or um, centre pivots, those type of things as well. Well, it sounds like there's still a long way to go before this is over and uh, I hope this is the last we hear about levy breaches. I know there's a lot of concerns, so hopefully the rest of the, the levies do hold, but there is a lot of water coming and it, it is starting to approach that peak. It's, it keeps getting pushed back, but uh, it will arrive eventually. So hopefully um, the measures that have been put in place will keep people safe. Thank you so much for explaining what's happened at Tura to me this afternoon, Steve. No problem, thank you. Steve Hine, an agronomist in the Maipalonga Tura area. He's also the head of the Progress Association there as well. Uh, so a lot happening on the river. It's hard to believe it hasn't actually even peaked yet, given uh, the stories that we're hearing coming out of that part of the world, the Riverland and the Murraylands. But we'll keep following it on this program. But for now, it is a quarter to one. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We've been talking about the river here in South Australia, but uh, upstream things have been happening as well. You will have seen the floodwaters stretching out from Burke in New South Wales downstream to Menindian, obviously, into to South Australia. Yathonga Station near Tilpa has actually been cut off by floodwaters from the Darling River for the last couple of months. The river's peaked and the water's starting to recede with damaged roads being assessed at the moment. But for Stuart Laliva, he actually won't be able to trade until March next year. He's speaking here with Oliver Brown. Yeah, not too bad, mate. It's dried up a lot, but the river's still up. It's still all around the house and um, it'll probably uh, be like that uh, for another three or four weeks, I suppose. Um, no, but we're going all right. The flies we've got pretty well under control now. So, yeah, leading up to Christmas, we might actually have a bit of breathing space. And uh, how long's it been since you reckon you might have had that sort of breathing space you just alluded to there? Oh, mate, it's probably been three months. You know, mixture of well, really wet weather, um, you know, and, you know, stock issues, and obviously with the river peaking and now falling. When did the river actually start coming up properly around your property? Like, has it been for several weeks now, or only recently? No, no, we've been cut off for probably three months now um, on the river road and we have a uh, what we call a flood road but that's been inundated by, you know, with rain so we haven't been able to use that but we've been able to get out in that in the last couple of weeks. If you can tell me a little bit more about this wool shed, um, it, it's fairly new as I understand. Yeah, it's um, it's about three-year-old and it's you know, we've been cut off and we haven't you know, uh, been able to use that and we won't, we won't be able to use it for at least another probably six weeks. So we'd be relying on crutching trailers and you know, whatever to do um, to keep in front of the stock work. But yeah, you know, it was um, yeah we built it about three years ago when the old one blew down, and it's oh, that new DWI board and design. Anyway, and it appears to work pretty well. Is it severely impacting um, you and your business? 
it's probably if you had to share, Oliver, it would impact on the quality of wool going into your wool pack. Uh, for crutching and that, we most of us use crutching trailers anyway. So, um, but if we had to share or something, yes, it would have big impact. Is that just sort of the timing reason? The, the timing of it is uh, is not necessarily uh, beneficial, but it, it could have been worse if it was a different time of year. Is that essentially what you're saying? Oh, pretty well, yeah. 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 In, in a month's time, we should be able to get access to it. Uh, I'll have to do a bit of road building and whatever else. But, um, yeah, we should have it in a month's time, so, yeah, we can get back on track again. Yeah, where the old shed was and everything else, the... Um, uh, back in the day, they, had, uh, they knew exactly where water went and where it didn't go, and so it's all on high ground. In terms of going into the new year, how are things looking like? I thought you, I think you said that you probably reckon another another few weeks um, you'll be cut off, but you'll be able to sort of uh, move around again as normal after that? Um, as far as trading goes, I wouldn't think that we'd be on the river roads till probably end of February. There will be a lot of damage, and it's got to dry, you know, dry enough from, to get down there to, uh, to fix it, you know, the where it's all been washed out, and that depends on what sort of weather we get uh, rain-wise. So we won't probably start trading till March again, but anyway, we'll just wait and see, but that's the way it looks at the moment. That was... Stuart Laleva from Yathonga Station near Tilpa speaking with Oliver Brown. Now, uh, we've been talking a lot about asparagopsis, the uh, the seaweed. For the first time in Australia, though, Port Lincoln tuna company Dinko Tuna is harvesting natural seaweed to make liquid fertiliser. It's different to the seaweed that's used in livestock feed to reduce methane, and they're also going to be using it to make an organic dye that can be used in food like plant-based burgers for example. Managing Director at Dinko Farms, Lakina Lucan, explains how seaweed can work with tuna farming. Today is uh, our first time that we, you know, harvest the seaweed. We just got the permit to harvest it. So this seaweed will turn it to a seaweed fertilizer. That is the first process that we want to do. And then uh, we got some, you know, like a hard solid that we can turn it into, you know, like a poultry feed. And uh, or we can turn it to just a garden bed, something like that, that, you know. So this seaweed that we harvest, it will bring uh, nutrition and nitrogen, phosphate, uh, phosphorus, sorry, and uh, out of this uh, water. So the water will have uh, better, you know, good quality for farm fish and all, and that is improve the quality of the, the water. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that. This is my new uh, venture, you know. We've heard a lot about um, seaweed being used for, for livestock feed for sheep and cattle yes. to reduce methane, but this is a different type of seaweed and different use? Yeah, it's a, it is a different type of seaweed and, uh, you know, this one uh, is uh, because uh, those that use for methane uh, reduction, um, that is uh, asparagopsis. But there's so many of seaweed type in Australia, so this is uh, the one that we're looking at to use for eyes because it's a uh, absorb more of uh, nitrogen from the water so we bring it up and of course as I said uh, you know if you just want to take the seaweed out of the water and dump it on land that is not good so we turn it into something that become useful and uh, that's uh, we now very exciting that we got some uh, you know seaweed fertilizer and uh, another one is uh, to do with uh, pigment so because now some country 
is already banned uh, food color that come uh, with uh, some kind of chemical that is once you put in the food and then uh, when you uh, the consumer have that it's become affected to the health of the human so this is become organic uh, you know pigment is become uh, organic food color so you know you can uh, use this in a like a plant based food uh, we did try you know the burger with uh, some of soybean and all that so it's uh, it's some uh, ex- you know exciting so what does this essentially mean it's you said it's the first time in australia that this has happened so what does this mean for the industry here in port lincoln Yes, uh, because uh, this is the first time in uh, Australia for us to cultivate the native seaweed. And uh, we put this uh, near our tuna farm. And uh, that is, uh, we take, uh, you know, like uh, when we uh, farm tuna, we just put uh, some, uh, you feed tuna with uh, sardine. So also tuna have some waste come out so it's all in the water so with this we harvest the seaweed that absorb all those nitrogen new nutrient and phosphorus in the water we bring it out so that is mean our port lincoln now the fish that we always say that clean and green now even better because uh, as you can see that in port lincoln we're not industrial area so you know our water is already good quality but when we uh, do the tuna farm we don't want to leave our footprint of uh, carbon of nitrogen in the water so we take it out so this is going to be another industry that we will uh, have in Port Lincoln working in conjunction with the agriculture so um, that is a you know, it's a very good industry for the future. So making use of a, a byproduct, essentially? Yes, yes. Also, we're looking at that, you know, if we have this uh, seaweed fertilizer, we can uh, also can work with, uh, you know, fin fish or other agriculture that got some waste, like a tuna, we got gill and gut and all that. We can turn it into a... Uh, fertilizer as well uh, can be mixing with our seaweed fertilizer to get more of nitrogen you know con- uh, what is called is concentrate in the fertilizer Managing Director at Dinko Tuna Farms, Lakina Lucan. Shashi Naya leads the Saudi Aquaculture Program based in Adelaide. He's been helping Dinko Tuna with the seaweed venture and says this is the first time a liquid fertiliser has been made out of cultivated native seaweed. He says it's an exciting progression in the marine byproducts area. So most of the liquid fertilisers that you get in the market are from storm cast seaweeds and uh, uh, other products. But this is the first time we developed this. So, so there's a real big opportunity for South Australia to be in that space where we have cultivated native seaweeds, growing next to tuna farms or um, other finfish farms, improving the coastal water quality, and also in the process uh, reducing the nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus footprint of the industry significantly. So there's a lot of social license aspect to it. Plus you're developing a product that go on to improve soil productivity, agriculture productivity and others. So, so there's a lot of spin-off opportunities here that we are very proud of. So, so to be based in Port Lincoln, I think this is the ideal place for this to be happening. 
Shasinaya leads the Saudi Aquaculture Program and he's speaking with Brooke Nindorf and there'll be more on that story online later today. Finally today, from environmental disruptions to road accidents, Australia has seen a bit of an overabundance of its most iconic animal, the kangaroo. In an effort to manage the roo, SA Landscapes are funding three projects that will raise the awareness and turn the, uh, what can be a pest to some people, into an asset. Kangaroo Partnerships Program Coordinator Emily Gregg says multiple stakeholders will work to find solutions and shared wins. There's multiple impacts that overabundant kangaroos have on the ground. So there's the environmental impacts on local species, so both our plants and animals, and it's also the impact on production outcomes. So basically just eating out the pasture and not leaving enough left for our agricultural kind of purposes. And then there's also degradation for cultural sites, uh, as well as social impacts. So I'm sure people would have experienced some potential vehicle collisions on the road and also just mental health impacts on land managers who are dealing with these really unsustainable population levels. And what is being done to keep kangaroos to a sustainable level? Yeah, so there's a few options available. So in some very particular areas, fencing and control of water points can be used successfully. So we see that with some of our natural wildlife reserves, that they can fence off an area to keep the kangaroos out and manage the impact that way. But on the broader landscape level, so particularly in the rangelands environment that we're really focused on, these methods are likely to not be enough. And so the management approaches you're looking at are through the professional harvesting industry or culling through permits issued by the Department of the Environment water. Is there awareness or an understanding around why there are so many kangaroos? Yeah, so we, we do know why kangaroos are overabundant in the environment. So essentially, when we moved into this landscape and started using it for agricultural purposes, sheep and cattle, etc., we fundamentally changed the resources that are available in the landscape, particularly around installing artificial water points uh, and the like. And so this has resulted in further exacerbating what is a natural boom-bust cycle of kangaroo populations, but by altering those resources, we've, we've made it a lot more dramatic. And so it really, as a result of those overabundant populations that are far beyond what would be naturally expected, um, because those changes are fundamentally because of us. And so it's our responsibility to kind of manage them, to maintain the environmental, agricultural and social and cultural values that we see in the landscape. And so we have that understanding about why those overabundant populations are there. And I think that's because it is such a complex issue and there's lots of voices in this space. It's it's hard for, you know, the everyday person who's not in this issue as much as someone like me is to kind of understand that complexity and, and why we do have to do something about it. And there's quite a few different partnerships that are coming together to manage the roo situation in the rangelands. How is each playing their role? Yeah, so our project, the Kangaroo Partnership Project, so it really aims to assist in managing this threat to the environment, but it's also looking at that broader, trying to incorporate the different aspects that are really important to this issue. So we've got partners involved that are from the kangaroo industry, that are from conservation, animal welfare, and also land managers on the ground and government. So our project's funded by the Landscape Priorities Fund, and it's really about gathering all of those stakeholders together to try and explore and trial solutions that result in shared wins between all of those different groups. So essentially, as a result of that project, we've run a grant program that's trying to align with the priorities that we've identified as a kind of collective. Northern New York Landscape but Kangaroo Partnerships Program Coordinator Emily Gregg speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. That's all we've had time for for today. It's coming up to one o'clock time for news.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.